Let us stand and read the scriptures. We've been looking at the life of Peter. We want to see a passage in the New Testament in which I call Peter's great mistake. And then how in his own letter, he shows how he discovered how to correct it. In Matthew 16, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then in 1 Peter, therefore prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure, from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all glory like the flower is grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be You be seated. The apostle Paul, or Peter, made a great mistake. And in these letters, he says five different times, I am stirring you, your mind's up by way of reminder. In other words, you know these things, but don't forget these things. He was, as we say, <clears throat> preaching to the choir. And I don't know where you went, but you left. But, <laughs> but actually the choir is all of us. Those who've heard it most often and yet so easily forget. What is it that he wants to remind us of? There are many things in this powerful passage 
that we've been preaching on, Paul and Mark and Chad, over these last months. But I believe Peter, for sure, in one area, was reminded of the, this great mistake that he made, and he wants to speak to that issue. He lived in a world that was hostile to Christ. He lived in a Roman world that told you this is the way life is going to be and there's nothing you can do about it. He lived in a Jewish world that said this is the way you have to believe about God and there's no other way to look at it. And he is now following with his friends this man who has been doing remarkable things, saying incredible things that he's listening to. And he takes them up into the north in Caesarea Philippi and he asks them this question, who do men say that the Son of Man is? This was a title that he took to himself from the book of Daniel. And several of them say several different things and then finally he says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes this magnificent statement, this incredible confession that he gives he, as, as so often, he's the first of the, the apostles to do things. And he says, you are the son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus fully accepts his statement. And then he says to him, Peter, You are, have not heard this from man. It hasn't been revealed to you just because of miracles or words or what others are saying, but it's because God has revealed it to your heart. He is the one who has given you that understanding. And Peter, he goes on to say, which we didn't read on this rock, this truth, that I am the Son of God, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. I will build my church. Now, can you imagine how Peter felt at that moment? He has just received the greatest compliment he's ever been given and maybe ever will get. Here is the one who he's proclaimed, this is the Son of God, this is Israel's Messiah, and this person is saying to me, yes, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. uses his full name. What an incredible moment. I'm sure his heart swelled with appropriate pride of being able to say that to Jesus. Wow. But paradox of all paradox, contradictions of all contradictions, in the very next breath, we read this statement. When Jesus says, now I have revealed to you who I am, I'm gonna to reveal to you what I've come to do. I will go up to Jerusalem and I will suffer by the hands of the Jewish leaders and I will be killed and raised again on the third day. And Peter only hearing suffer and being killed, gets in Jesus's face. It says he grabbed him, pulled him close, and he says, Lord, this will never happen to you. 
This cannot be, forbid it. Can you imagine grabbing the Son of God and rebuking him, which is what the scripture says he did. And Jesus, it says, turns his back against Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. He calls Peter a tool of Satan, a tool of the devil. And from the moment of his greatest compliment to now receiving his greatest rebuke, all in one conversation. Can you imagine how Peter felt then? I think it was, this mistake was seared into his mind. Would you forget that? Would I be able to forget that? Wow. So Peter is standing there listening to all of this and Jesus then tells him why he just said what he said. He says, Peter, he says, you are setting your mind on the things of men and you're not setting your mind on the things of God. And if you really want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross to follow me. I believe this is a mistake that Peter never forgot. I'll never forget as a young pastor, probably the most searing rebuke I ever received. I had been at my first church for just a few weeks and our senior pastor there said, uh, would you like to give the morning prayer next week? And I said, yes, sir, I sure would. And uh, I'd been a Christian for a good long time. I'd been through seminary. I thought I knew exactly what to say. I got up and gave what I thought was a great prayer. And he came up to me afterwards and said, let's have some coffee tomorrow. And uh, so we went and met coffee and his first words out of my mouth was, he said, that's the most terrible prayer I've ever heard. <laughs> Don't ever say that again. Not only was I shocked, I'd never had anybody criticize my praying. But then he went on to say, you said, Lord, there are those here today who have sinned and who need forgiveness. He said, never say that. He said, you should always say, Lord, we have all sinned. We all need your forgiveness. He said, never separate yourself from the people. You're no better than they are. You don't call someone else a sinner. You agree you're a sinner. We're all sinners. And I had to agree he was right, but I was angry. It took me weeks to get over that. And finally, God had to say to me, son, you need to get your mind straight. You need to quit thinking about your wounded pride and put your things on the things of God. Yes, sir. You see, we're very easily get our self view onto ourself. 
As a matter of fact, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones who said in one of his statements that far too often we get our, mind, we get our thoughts on ourselves. His exact quote is, most of our unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we are listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We'll come back to that. But Peter didn't get over this rebuke. And amongst all the wonderful things in his letter, he brings us back to that point. In the first letter, in the first few verses, he begins by telling us the great truths of how grace has come to us and our obedience to it and our salvation. And then he returns as we started and read in verse 13 with the issue of setting the mind. And so in this point, I think Peter had gone back to the scriptures to say, how did I miss this about Christ? When you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the New Testament, very few letters have as many allusions to the Old Testament than Peter's letters and quotes. Because I think he went back to find out how did I make that mistake? He even writes in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that very voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have something more sure the prophetic word, meaning the Old Testament for him, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but by men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he validates the power, the authority of the Word of God from the Old Testament. And I think he dug deeply back into it. And so when we come to this verse 13 where we started reading, he tells us three things about our minds, setting our minds on God. The first thing he says is prepare your minds. Or in some of your scriptures, it says, gird up the loins of your minds, which was an Old Testament symbol of men uh, when they would work in their tunics, that when they needed to work, they would gather up the bottoms of their tunics, tie it around their waist, and then work with nothing encumbering them. In essence, he's saying, roll up your sleeves, do strong mental work in the word of God, Christians should not be flabby in their faith. They should have a disciplined mind. 
so that you gain convictions about what you believe, that you'll stand on what you believe. You won't waver on what the scripture tells you is truth. You've thought it through, you know the facts. It's very interesting, the word religion in the original Latin comes from the words religio, which means the task of putting divided realities back together. And when someone says, are you religious? Many people say, well, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm spiritual, I have faith. Because somehow or another, the idea of religion has a negativity to it. We think of it more as ritual or something. But what it means is, is that we're to put together the great truths of God. We're to put together the human with the divine. We're to put together earth and heaven as both being under the control of God. That what he started in Genesis, he will return to this earth and finish and replenish, restore the earth in Revelation. Of male and female is seen as both co-regents ruling for God's kingdom. How sin and salvation work and what it means to be saved. And taking our mistakes and showing us where the insights of scripture help us learn from what we've done wrong. A mind prepared for action sees the bigger picture. Secondly, he says, have a sober mind. This means a mind that is calm and steady. It's one that doesn't let emotion rule or circumstances cloud. This meant a lot to him because three different times in this letter alone, he says, be sober minded and not get carried away with your own views only. But see, truth is not found in how we think because our minds can easily be deceived, Jeremiah tells us, because we do have a sin nature. Our emotions can cloud our thinking, but God's word tells you what is right. I'll never forget about a year and a half ago, I was going through a period of time in which there was something that didn't feel right. I had worked through the, the past tragedies in my life, wonderful friends, beginning to enjoy the things I was doing and so forth, but there was something that just didn't feel right. I couldn't put my finger on it. I just called it a, a, a malaise. And I said, Lord, I, I, something, something's not right. So I went to the scriptures and I was studying the book of Philippians that month. I, my, my plan is to study a book a month. I've done that for all the years since seminary. I was reading Philippians and Philippians 4 took me to understand. Paul says, I have learned to be content in all things, whether in plenty or want. And I said, that's it, Lord, that's it. I am not content. I don't have your contentedness. 
And then I thought about it more, meditated on the passage, and then the word popped out to me. Paul says, I have learned to be content. And I thought, what did he learn? What, what was it that he learned? But as I read further down in the passage, there's the answer. He says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And I said, that's it, Lord. I can't make myself content. I can't create a man-made contentedness. I can't find something outside, some event, some person, something or whatever to make myself content. You're the only one that can make me content because I need your contentment, not what I try to create. So that became my prayer. And what I found was is that the Lord began to slowly remove and the malaise left. And I had a peace that I hadn't had before. See, that's what the Word of God does as you meditate on it, as you think about it. And then thirdly, he says we need an optimistic mind, one that is filled with hope, gratefulness for the past. Christ really did come for us, gratefulness for the future. He really is coming back because he values us. And now Peter says, here's how the mind works. And after a section in which he talks about what our life should look like, then he comes down and he says, now, here's how you should think. And he gives us insight by, Peter says to this, I gained the insight into my mistake by listening to God through his word. And so in that last section of scripture, he tells us four things about the word of God. First, he says it is eternal. It's imperishable, meaning it doesn't change. It, is, it applies to all times, all circumstances, and to all people. It'll always be there. It is firm, it's eternal. Secondly, the Word of God is alive. It brings life with it. In its living within us, it brings us to clarity and to discernment and to wisdom. It goes into the dark corners of our lives and brings light to them. Thirdly, he says the Word of God is nourishment and satisfaction like milk for a newborn babe. And when a, a baby craves the milk, what is, it, what is the results of that? There's a peace, there's a rest. There's a pleasure in the mother's arms. As the psalmist says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. The fourth thing he says, the word of God brings growth and strength for spiritual living. It takes us from immaturity to maturity. It takes us from simple thinking to wisdom that is deep. It takes us from seeing our weakness to finding strength to face temptations that we couldn't face before. It enables us to make hard decisions in our life. It enables us to deny ourselves more readily and help us to understand that denying yourself is not simply abstaining from some pleasure, rather that we find that, that what real pleasure and what real happiness is. And we discover that holiness and happiness are not opposites 
So how do we go about putting this to work in our own lives? A couple of things. If you look in your bulletin on the sermon notes, which I'm sure not too many of you do, but um, turn over to the sermon notes because I have a, a diagram there I want to explain. You'll notice the mind open with a grid across it. The world is constantly trying to squeeze you into its way of thinking. What one of our recent news stations acknowledged they knew there were stories that weren't true, but they kept telling them because their ratings stayed up. How do we know, how do we discern real truth, true, true news from fake news? It's because the Word of God helps us to build a grid across our thinking as we lace it, as we put it into our lives. I remember one young man said to me once, he said, you know, he said, I've been to church all my life. I've heard so many sermons, hundreds of them. He said, I can't remember any of them. And I said, well, when you were young, did your mother cook you three meals a day? Yes. And she did for all the years you were at home? Yes. I said, how many of those meals do you remember? None. And I said, but aren't you glad you, you ate them? You see, the Word of God, as it keeps coming into your mind, it begins to lace across your mind and create a grid and create a screen by which when things enter, all of a sudden it's filtered. And you realize, that's not right. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound true. Wait a minute, I'm, there's something not here. It's, this isn't clear. And you don't just accept it for what it is. But you read the Word of God you hear the Word of God. You get familiar with the way God thinks, the way God works, the choices that He makes, the things He likes, the things He abhors. You see over time the decisions that He makes and all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's why He put the children in Egypt. It was actually a mercy of His. Oh, that's what he did during the period of Judges. And this is what he's doing. And you see it over time and you realize how wise his decisions are and that they're trustworthy. So that when the world sends them to you and the devil even sends thoughts your way, you have a grid that helps you discern what is right and what is wrong. Oh, notice the verses that you have, the top two we read, but in Hebrews 5, the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, notice by constant practice, obedience, to distinguish good from evil. Do your best to be, present yourself to God as approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All scripture is given is from God's profitable teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. Or even one other I could have added in Hebrews chapter four that we're familiar with. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the soul and the marrow, the joint and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. And it says, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
Because oftentimes we don't really know the intentions of our heart. We don't often know whether our motives are pure or not, but the scripture helps us to see it. One last thing, and that is, it's not simply reading it, it's obeying it, and it's finding its great truth. It's finding that that's where you find real peace, where you learn to forgive, where you love, learn to love God, and you find strength for what you face. And also that the Word of God is something that brings light into your soul, but also light to come forth from you, as Peter says. I close with this. There was a very well-known teacher in Europe who taught in many of the universities of Europe. His home was Crete. He grew up in Crete. He was Greek. And he was there teaching in the university uh, in a summer school class. He was teaching philosophy. And at the end of the, the time, the last day, the last day of class, he came, finished his last lecture, and he gave that kind of throwaway question that many professors will give. He said, well, are there any last questions, you know, feel free to ask. And he's closing up his stuff, not expecting anything. It's a hot summer afternoon. And he heard a noise and he looked up and there was a young man in the back waving his hand. And the young man said, Dr. Papandropoulos, he said, what is the purpose of life? And the crowd there did exactly what you did. Like, oh my gosh, we're gonna be here for the next three hours. But Dr. Papandropoulos said, let me tell it tell you this way, just a short story. As a young boy here on Crete, he said, I was here when the Germans invaded our island. And they came into our village. There were four soldiers on motorcycles. And our villagers rose up with the limited weapons that they had and they defended our city and they killed the four soldiers. And as little boys, we watched the battle from up above and when it was all over, we ran down and we were looking at the battle scene. Here was one of the motorcycles that had turned over and one of the, the, um, the, the mirrors on the motorcycle had broken. And he said, I picked up a little piece of glass and um, I've kept it as a kind of a memory of that. And he said, but then I, I, would, I learned as a little boy that I could, I could take it to school and I would catch the sunlight and I would shine it in somebody's eyes and blind them and laugh. He said, and I learned as a little boy, I could go look in holes and stuff for animals and bugs. But he says, I got older. He said, I began to realize, he said, you know, he said, the, the light is not mine. I'm just like a mirror. And he said, light is given to us. And therefore, what we find with the light is that we can take that light and we can shine it into the dark areas of our life and see where truth needs to fall. We can also shine it into the lives of other people who are struggling with pain and show them that there's hope. You see, that's the power of the Word of God. The great mistake is we don't remember how powerful, how much authority is in the Word of God. We need to do everything we can 
because as G.K. Chesterton said, it's not, it hasn't failed because we haven't really looked at it. He says failed because we found that it was difficult, but then we quit trying. Remember, as Peter did, come back and don't think like men, don't think like the world, but what is going on in this world is not the big picture. God isn't finished with American Christianity, just like he's not finished with any of us as individuals, because we want to take this powerful word and the living word of Christ to a world that desperately needs to know there is a right, there is a truth that we can depend on. Let me pray for us.